0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org.
1: God, we do worship you this day. We gather as your people to praise your holy name. We pray, Father, that we might live lives of gratitude for that promise that you've fulfilled in so many of our lives that when you are lifted up, you'll draw us to yourself. For that, we're grateful. At the same time, we pray, Father, that you'd forgive us that during this time of the year we survey the wondrous cross much more deeply than we do every single day of our lives. Encourage us in our walk with you. That we might look to the cross every single moment for your glory and for our good. May it be a daily pursuit for us, Father, to draw closer to that sacrifice made in our behalf, that substitutionary work that you did for your people. May we pursue that every day. And not only that lack of looking for a deeper walk with you, Father, there are other sins in our lives. And even as we think of them now, we pray you'll forgive us, you'll cleanse us, you'll restore us to yourself. Make us your church. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one to another. And so, Father, may our community and our world see us being the church, see us loving each other in ways that uh, the world can't do. And not just our friends and not just our peers, Father, teach us to love the unlovable. Teach young people to love those who are up in years. Teach us, Father, to love those who are struggling with this life. Teach us to love those who are struggling with sin in their lives. Teach us, Father, to love those who are, who are lonely. Teach us to love those who are grieving. Teach us what that means. For we know that greater love is no one than this that a man lays down his life for his friends. One laid down his life for us, Lord. Teach us to love that way and be your church. And if this world ever needs your love, it's today. Crises everywhere. Death and destruction everywhere. We pray that you would give the leaders of nations wisdom and decisions that need to be made, that affect our very lives and the lives of those around the world. Oh, Lord, send revival. And if you choose that it begins with us, Father, we pray that it begin today. As we proclaim your word, thank you for your word. Empower our pastor as he delivers your message to us today, straight to our hearts. Pierce our hearts with the truth of your word. For your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you.
0: If you would to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter twelve. This morning uh, we'll give attention to John chapter twelve, beginning in verse forty four to the end of the chapter. John writes. At the end of this chapter, these words, beginning in verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. As the Father has told me. It's the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine a situation for me this morning. I want you to imagine that you're going about your normal everyday business. On a given Thursday evening. And your telephone rings. And you answer the telephone, and as you pick it up, you hear a familiar voice on the other end of the telephone, and it just happens to be someone that you work with, somebody that you know, someone that knows you. And as they begin to speak to you, you can hear in their voice that something is desperately wrong. And as they speak, they begin to tell you the situation, and they describe to you where they are in their vehicle, in a parking lot that's deserted somewhere. And they begin to describe to you how they're thinking and how they're feeling at the moment, completely hopeless. They look around at all the various parts of their life and all they see is darkness. They didn't get the promotion they were looking for at work. Their marriage is falling apart. Among other things. And in the midst of that conversation, they tell you that they're sitting in this car and they have a pistol on their lap. And they're thinking very seriously about putting it to their head and pulling the trigger. What do you say to that person? What do you say to that person who is desperately lost in the darkness of the moment? You've got just a minute to talk. What do you say? I've been thinking about that a lot this week i had the opportunity to be a part of a memorial service this week for a young man who made a similar choice not to call somebody but followed through with a similar plan and i've been thinking to myself what kind of a message does christianity have for a person who finds himself hopelessly lost in darkness What does Christianity have to say to that person who finds themselves at the very end of their rope, so deep in the darkness that they're willing to consider taking their own life? It's not an easy question, right? What does Christianity have for someone like that? What does Christianity have for someone in that position? I want to suggest to you that if Christianity does not have a message for the person in that position, Christianity doesn't have a message at all. You see, what that person needs at that moment is not a set of doctrines. What they need at that moment is not a Bible study. What they need at that moment is not a a list of, of spiritual phrases and platitudes. In fact, what they need at that moment is not even a message that can be spoken. What they need at that moment is a person. The man, Jesus Christ. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. I'm convinced that that's the only hope for a person who finds himself in that position of life. It is also the only hope for any person who finds himself in any other position in life. We live in a world that I'm convinced is enveloped in darkness. The Bible describes it that way, and experience around us, if you're paying attention, shows that to be true, doesn't it? We live in a world, and particularly in our culture, a culture that's enveloped in darkness. There's a a moral darkness that kind of pervades the culture. Oh, on the surface, if you just look, it's all lights and glamour and pomp and circumstances, but when you dig a little below the surface, you find that morally, it's not light, it's dark morally it's not bright it's filled with darkness people no longer know the difference between right and wrong god's standards have been completely abandoned and relativism and relativity has been embraced so that now these days almost nothing is just described or defined as morally wrong in fact the things that that the word of god would would tell us are are, are morally repulsive are now celebrated in the open. Every human lust, every perverse behavior, every sick and twisted desire we're told is okay and to be embraced and never judged. Nearly every act morally that the Bible describes as sin is now permitted, encouraged, embraced. That is not moral light, that's moral darkness. And the culture is suffering from the effects. Of Living in that kind of a darkness that kind of a that kind of an attitude toward morality does not bring life and light and blessing It brings heartache and pain and grief And All around us, that's what we see We're Living in a world filled with moral darkness We're living in a world in a culture that's filled with spiritual darkness too, aren't we? We're told by the statistics that uh, these days people are very spiritual. They're very interested in spiritual things. The problem is being interested in spiritual things is not enough to shine light into your darkness if the spiritual things in which you're interested are not the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look around, there's false religion everywhere. Cults are thriving and popping up, new ones all around us. Every belief system you can imagine is surrounding us. Secular humanism the default religion of this nation the United States of America is rampant and really has become our national religion Our culture and, and those who are in it are blind to the truth they hate the truth reject the truth and will embrace almost any kind of spirituality apart from the truth It's a spiritual darkness that pervades And we're seeing the darkness and the ramifications all around us. It's moral darkness. There's spiritual darkness. There's mental and emotional darkness. There is a a sort of a hopelessness that has descended upon people. And it's pervasive and it's consuming. It's destructive. If you talk to very many people, you begin to see glimpses of that hopelessness all around people struggling emotionally people struggling mentally and trying to do everything they can reach in every direction to to find some sort of a light in the midst of that kind of darkness medicating ourselves going to doctors doing anything and everything to try and find some sort of light in the emotional darkness that they feel and sadly for many in our culture they never find it the statistics for suicide in our culture are amazing Some are in the neighborhood of 40-something thousand people make that choice every year In 2010 more people died via suicide than automobile accidents In this country In that same year it was the third leading cause of death In 15 to 25 year olds Well there's Reasons and their explanations for all of these things. But there's no question that there's a darkness in which we live mental, emotional, moral, spiritual darkness all around. And the question is, what does a people need? What does a person need when they find themselves enveloped in darkness? What they need is not a message. What they need is a person, the man, Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the one who says, as John records for us here, I've come into a world filled with darkness, and I've come into it as a light, as a light. He is the light that people need. And John has been describing for us this man, the person, Jesus Christ, for 12 chapters now. He's been giving us a glimpse at who he is and and what he said and what he did and what he means. And how we should respond to him. He's been chronicling for us the public ministry of Jesus in those years when he walked among men. And as we come to this last part of chapter 12... John is going to conclude describing for us the public ministry of Jesus. This text that we look at this morning is a bookend to the first half of the Gospel of John. It is is John's final summary of the public ministry of Jesus. It's John's summary of what Jesus said and who he is and what he came to do. As Matthew Henry says, this is Jesus' farewell sermon to the Jews. Everything that jesus says in these verses john has has already reported that jesus has said on other occasions And we have looked at many of these thoughts as we've trekked through the the gospel of john already But there's a reason that john Reviews them again here at the end. There's a reason that he puts them all in a kind of a concise Paragraph for us to stop and say here's the summary of jesus that you need to know based on his public ministry and it is these things that he tells us about Christ that we desperately need to know today. It is these things that he's going to tell us about who Jesus is that the world around us that is absolutely enveloped in darkness needs to know, needs to hear, needs to embrace so that they can be delivered from their spiritual darkness, so that they can be delivered from their moral darkness, so that they can be delivered from their emotional darkness. It's what they need to know. It's the message. It's the person that they need to know, that we need to know, that I need to know, that you need to know. And so John reveals him one last time for us. This is who Jesus is. From the rest of the Gospel of John, the attention is going to shift and focus. The rest of this gospel is going to be focused on John reporting to us, Jesus turning inward toward his disciples, preparing them for his soon-coming death and crucifixion and burial and resurrection, and also his preparation for them for the worldwide mission that he's going to launch them out on after his death and resurrection. So it's a turning point in the gospel from this point on. It's an inward sort of a message to the apostles, preparing them for what's to come. But here, before he does that, John wants us to reflect on Jesus and who he is. And how he is a light in the midst of all the darkness. And so that's what we'll do this morning with the time we have. Who is Jesus? That's really the question that the whole book has been asking, right? That's John's purpose that we've repeated for you time and time again in writing this book. was to show us who Jesus is so that we might see him. And upon seeing him, we might be drawn to him. And being drawn to him, we might believe upon him and find life everlasting. That's what John's after. And that's what he's been doing. And here he gives us a final summary of who Jesus is. So let me just give you, in our time, a few bullet points. None of these are particularly novel. We've seen them all at some point or other throughout. But we'll review them this morning as a way of kind of wrapping up this first section. Who is Jesus? The first thing he tells us is Jesus is a revelation of the Father. Verses 44 and 45, a revelation of the Father. He says, and Jesus cried out. And said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, we don't know the timing of this, because uh, if you've been trekking along and paying attention to the timing here in John's chapter 12, you remember back in verse 36, we're told by John um, uh, in, in this chapter that uh, Jesus, when he had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. So at the end of verse 36, we have Jesus departing from the crowds and hiding from them for a period. So when verses 44 through 45 um, uh, are spoken, we don't know for sure. It appears that Jesus went hid himself when he came back and said these things we don't know. Um, so there's really three options here. He could have, and you can just take your pick. It doesn't really matter, but you take your pick on when these things happen. He could have said these things, as some have said, when he was walking away and departing, kind of as a, a parting message Not sure that that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, He could have said these things at a subsequent time. He could have gone and hid himself for a while and then come back and delivered one final message a short time later and then turned himself toward the apostles. That's certainly possible. It's also possible though and maybe probable here that these are the things that jesus was saying all along throughout his ministry That this wasn't a new message that it was the message that he'd been saying and repeating over and over and over again And john is just choosing here to take what jesus has been saying all, the, all along and, and, and plugging it in here as a fitting sort of a bookend of this section a summary if you will Of jesus teaching in his public ministry and that makes sense ultimately we can't say for sure but what we can say is that this is a fitting summary at the end. It's a good summary of everything John's been telling us. And the first thing he wants us to remember here as we reflect on this is that Jesus is a revelation of the Father. That is, to see Jesus is to see the Father. That Jesus is a revelation of the Father, that that he speaks the Father's truth. When he speaks, it's as though the Father is speaking. When he declares truth, it's not his truth. It's not truth that he's come up with on his own. It's the Father's truth. And to hear it from him is the same as hearing it directly from the Father, because they are the same, one and the same in nature, and personhood. He speaks the Father's truth. He says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, what Jesus is saying is when you believe in me, that is when you believe in the things that I'm telling you to be true, true. and when you you believe in me and believe on me by placing your faith in me, it's not just that your faith and your belief does not terminate with me, it terminates ultimately with the Father. Does that make sense? To believe on me is to believe on him. To hear me is to hear him. To see me is to see him. To hear what I'm saying and to receive the truth that I give is to receive his truth. Matthew Henry describes it this way. You have to trek along with this. He says this. He says, Jesus is saying that faith does not terminate in Christ himself, but through him it is carried out to the Father that sent him, to whom is our end, we come as Christ, excuse me, we come by Christ As our way let me let me say that again But through him it is carried out to the father that sent him to whom as our end We come by christ as our way Do you see that the father is the end and we come to him by christ christ is the way to the father The doctrine of christ is believed and received as the truth of god The rest of a believing soul is in god through christ as mediator For its resignation to christ is in order to be presented to god Henry is saying Christ is our mediator and when we believe in him and we believe on him We're really believing in him and on him and through him to the father First Timothy chapter 2 Verse 5 Paul writes where there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men who is that? It's the man Jesus Christ As we believe in Him, we're believing through Him and in the Father. As we place our trust in Him, we're believing and placing our trust in Him, but we're also placing our trust through Him to the Father. It terminates ultimately with God the Father. He's our way to the Father. He is our mediator. There's something in the midst of this Truth that he speaks here that on the surface sounds so simple to see me is to see the father to hear me is to hear the father But when you begin to dig the depths of it You start digging very quickly into the depths of the trinity and you begin to realize very quickly that you're mining to depths that you can't fully grasp How on the one hand, the person of Jesus Christ is so unified with the Father in nature that they are one and the same, that to see one is to see the other, that to hear one is to hear the other, that to believe on one is to believe on the other, but at the same time, He is Christ who was sent from the Father. So on the one hand, He is one with the Father, but on the other hand, in in, in His purpose and in His mission in being sent from the Father, there's a condescension that's taken place. There's a unity in, in nature. There's a difference in purpose. But what John wants us to understand here is that to see Christ is to see the Father. To believe Christ is to believe the Father. And you can't do one without the other. That's the point John's trying to make. There's no room here to say, I believe in God, but I reject Jesus Christ. Right? Right? There's no possibility here, because Jesus says, if you see me and if you believe me, then you're also at the same time ultimately doing what? Believing, seeing and believing the Father. If you see me and you reject me, then you're at one at the same time seeing me and rejecting the Father. You see? When He speaks God speaks to believe in him is to believe in the father and it's impossible to say I believe in God and to reject Jesus You know if you talk to too many people about the gospel, you'll run across people who claim that right? You start to talk to them about spiritual things and you say, well, you know, what is your take on God? What do you think about God you think there is a God? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe there's God. I believe in God really you believe it back. That's great well, What do you think about Jesus? Oh, I don't know about Jesus I don't know about Jesus I mean, he's a good prophet said a lot of good things. He was a great moral teacher. I don't know. You know what you say to that person? No, you don't believe in God. You don't believe in God because you rejected Jesus Christ. And a person who claims to believe in God but has rejected Jesus Christ is believing a lie and is is trapped in an absolute false doctrine that is damning their soul. Really, isn't it? And so we say to the person, no, you don't believe in God because to believe in God is to believe in Christ. You can't believe in God and reject Jesus. The man rejects Jesus, he rejects God the Father no matter what he claims. Jesus speaks the Father's truth, to believe him is to believe the Father, to reject him is to reject the Father. But he also reveals the Father by bearing the Father's image, right? We've seen this theme in John's Gospel all throughout. I mean, just trekking back to chapter 1, this is one of the first things John told us, right? That Jesus bears the Father's image. It's not just that he speaks the Father's words and reveals the Father's truth, but he he bears his very image in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, say this part with me, and the Word was God. John told us from the beginning, Jesus, being the eternal Word, was God. He wasn't just with God, he was God. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God. Excuse me, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, who is the only God at the Father's side. It's Jesus, that's what John's presenting to us. He has made him known. How has he made him known? He, that's what he's come to do. He's come to make the Father known because he bears the Father's image. Flip a few pages over to chapter 8, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? But Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father, because if you knew me, you would what? You would know my father also, because to know me is to know him, because I bear his image. A few pages over in chapter 10. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, Jesus said, that you may know And that you may understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father is in me, and what? And I am in the Father. If the Father is in me and I am in the Father, then we're the same person, right? You see that? He bears the Father's image. We'll see this again in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, and just a couple pages over. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Now, pause just a second. We're going to get there. We'll talk about Philip a little bit. But think in these terms. How frustrating must it be to be Jesus, you know? I've just given you at least four times that we have recorded that he's made this plain, right? And surely he made it plain a lot more often than that to his disciples, to those that he was speaking with and mentoring daily all the time. And here it is right at the very end. He's going to be arrested and crucified in a relatively short amount of time. And here's one of his closest, Philip, saying "Sing to him what? Show us, you know, show us the Father. We just want to see Him. Now, Jesus didn't pull His hair out, I don't know. But you see a sense of the frustration, don't you? Because He says, What? Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? He's seen the Father to see me is to see him you don't need me to show you anything further i've been showing you all along and if you've been paying attention to me then you've seen the father you don't need to see anything else because i bear his image we see this in other new testament passages the apostle paul comes back to it in colossians chapter 1 when he says of christ for in him all the fullness of god was what pleased to dwell In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To see Christ is to see the fullness of God in dwelling a human form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. That is bearing the Father's image. All of what, what makes the Father the Father, as far as nature, is embodied in the person of Christ. And He bears that image for people to see. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews describes it this way. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is why Jesus was able to say, whenever you see me, you see the Father. Whenever you look at me, you see him. You see, friends, that's what happens. When men see Christ, they see God. When men hear the words of Christ, they hear the words of God. When men observe the works of Christ, they're observing in a very real sense the works of God. When men see the emotions of Christ and sense them, they sense and see the emotions of God. Unless you cover one of those theological worlds that says God has no emotions, but we'll say that another way. Just an aside. John Phillips said it this way. He said Christ was a flawless, moment-by-moment, audio-visual, full-color, three-dimensional demonstration of what God is like. I like that. Don't you? And we see this clearly in his life and ministry, don't we? That he bears the image of God, that he is none other than God in flesh. I mean, demons instantly recognized him, and they were terrified, right? They don't do that for me or you. Right? He had supernatural power, didn't he? He turned water into wine. He transforms a few fish and a few loaves into a meal to feed thousands. He could walk on waves in the middle of the sea. He cleansed lepers. He healed the sick. He raised up dead people. Who does that except for God in human flesh? God walking the earth. His enemies could plot his death, but they couldn't harm him until his time was come. They nailed him to a cross, but they couldn't kill him. He gave up his life. They buried him in a tomb, but they had no power to keep him there because he was raised up three days later. In Christ, the man, we see the power of God, divine power, God in flesh. We see God when we see Christ. You know, at his very birth, we were given a glimpse that that was who he was, didn't we? You Go back to Matthew chapter 1. The birth narrative of Jesus, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. We were told at the very beginning, weren't we? That this baby was not going to be just like anybody else. That this was going to be God. God coming to be with us. Those of you who have children, you have babies, when you gave birth, ladies, you gave birth to a, a new, newborn child. And when you gave birth, you gave birth to a new personality, a new person altogether that never had been before, right? And you gave them a name, and you watched them grow up, and you've seen that personality develop into their own. But when Jesus was born into flesh, it was not the creation of a new personality, was it? It was not. It was the coming into the world of a person who had existed for all eternity. God himself. God come to be with us. The word, John said, became flesh. The eternal God became flesh and lived among men. He revealed the Father. That's who Christ is. He's a revelation of the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look to Christ. You want to know what God expects? Listen to what Christ expected. You want to know what truth is as it's defined by God? Listen to what truth is as it's defined by Jesus. Because in him we see all the fullness of God fully dwelling. And Jesus said, to see me is to see the Father. You want to know, from time to time I have folks ask me, how do you know God exists? They want to get in that philosophical conversation, right? You ever run across folks who love philosophy, who love to just go round and round in circles with you about philosophy? Well, how do you know God exists? Can you prove to me that God exists? They really want to lead you down some sort of a rabbit trail to get you away from the gospel that matters and get you running in philosophical circles. You know, I've decided how I'm going to answer that question from here on out. You want to know how I know God exists? I've seen the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him, I've seen God. You know how God exists? I've seen Him. I see him in a person of Jesus Christ. A real historical human being who walked the planet, who spoke real words. Look at the history books. He was here. He was alive. He was well. He spoke. He lived. He died, was buried, and he was raised again. I've seen him, and in seeing him, I've seen God. That's how I know God exists. You don't need any deep philosophical defense for the existence of God. You just need to point to Jesus. Just point to him. Jesus is... Revelation of the father. He's also a light in the darkness He's a light for the darkness. He said in verse 46. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness once again, John is summarizing what I was laying out in the introduction, that the world is dark, that there's a, a human condition of darkness that has pervaded humanity for a very long time. And it's a darkness that's progressing. And I think if you get the tenor of how the New Testament tracks along, you find that that darkness continues to build until the very end. And John sums up humanity's worst problem, worst condition being that of darkness. Darkness. Humanity's worst problem is not lack of education. It's not poverty. It's not terrorism. Humanity's worst problem is not evil dictators. Humanity's worst problem is darkness. And what he has in mind here is a spiritual darkness. Physical darkness is a problem, right? If you're trying to navigate. For some of us, that's a problem. You ever tried walking around in the dark? Come on, raise your hand. Tell me if you've done it. Come on, I know. How'd it turn out for you? Yeah, usually not so good. Not so good. Not so good No darkness, physical darkness It it blinds us, it confuses us It frustrates us it, It conceals the past so we don't know which way to go It conceals dangers in a very real way, right? We don't see them. We trip over them. We fall. We hurt ourselves. It disorients us so we can't get our bearings. Physical darkness does that. That's why we need the light, right? We need the light so we can see where to go. We need the light so that we can recognize danger before we get to it. We need the the light so that we can gain our bearings of where we are and where we're going. Physically that makes a lot of sense to us and jesus is using that analogy here and saying that that he's a light in the darkness He declares that there's a a spiritual darkness and it has the same effect on us spiritually as a physical darkness has on us physically That spiritual darkness it blinds us to the truth It conceals the the pathway to righteousness so we don't know what is the right way to go It blinds us to the truth so that we can't tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong what's true and what's false It disorients us so we don't know which way to turn find a way out it frustrates us it discourages us so we can't see a way out of our situation to spiritual darkness you felt the touch of that in your life at some point I'm sure maybe you've come here this morning sensing that in a very real way in your own life you don't know which way to go you're disoriented you're frustrated you're discouraged You're trapped in the circumstances and situations of your life, and you're not sure how to find a way out or if there even is a way out. That's spiritual darkness. And Jesus says, for that I've come as a light. The Bible talks to us, it uses this illustration of light and darkness all throughout, and it describes this spiritual darkness as being caused by sin. It's it's sin that darkens the spiritual eyes, that darkens the spiritual perception, that blinds us in a very real way. In Proverbs chapter 2, the writer of Proverbs describes a sinner as one who, quote, walks in the ways of darkness. That's what a sinner is. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, sinners are described as those who call evil good and good evil, evil. those who substitute darkness for what? For light. And light for darkness. Has there ever been a more apt of our culture than that? Substituting light for darkness and the opposite? In Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 21, speaking of, of those who have rejected the Lord, Paul writes, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And what happened to their foolish hearts? They're darkened. They're darkened. This is that spiritual darkness. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul describes the, the acts of sinful humanity as the uh, as the unfruitful works of darkness. And in Matthew chapter eight, verse twelve, we find that one of the clearest descriptions of eternal hell is simply the phrase "outer darkness." Outer darkness. There's the spiritual darkness that, 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 that pervades the human condition, the human soul that blinds us and disorients us and frustrates us and discourages us. And if we don't find a way out of that darkness, if a light doesn't shine from the outside in and lead the way out of that darkness, then that spiritual darkness leads us out into eternal darkness. It's a horrible place to be. And yet that is exactly where so many people are trapped. All around you and all around me. That's the reality of their lives every single day. That is the essence of hell. A place completely void of the illumination of Jesus Christ. Where there is no hope for the light of Christ to shine. Apart from some sort of outside illumination... Mankind is hopeless and lost. Unless an outside help arrives, all will die in their sins. And Jesus says, though, that's not the way it has to be, because I have come. How? As a, I've come as a light. I understand that you're trapped in in spiritual darkness. I understand that you don't know which way is up. But I have come, I have come as a light to shine in the midst of that darkness, to, to reveal everything so that you can see it as it is. I've come to illuminate the truth so that you can see the difference between truth and error. I've come to shine light on the light on your moral life, your moral self. And I've come to shine the light so that I can expose sin and darkness and I can, I can expose it so that you can see it. And so that in seeing it, you can turn from it and repent of it and run to me. I've come as a light to illuminate the path of righteousness so you'll know how to live your life, so that you'll understand the difference between right and wrong. I've come to illuminate the paths of joy, to cut through the darkness of depression, to cut through the darkness of discouragement, to cut through the darkness that that, that squashes your soul. I've come to breathe life and light into all of that. Jesus says, That's who I am. That's what I've come to do. I've come to be a light. John Piper said this way, he said, nothing will be the same again when you have him as your light. Everything looks different in the light of Christ. Even now, his light will help you bear the sorrows of darkness. It will be a soft glow to comfort you in your lonely room after a devastating loss. It will be a lamp on your troubled path. It will reveal the wise and loving face of God behind every frowning providence. Jesus is that light, isn't he? That's why he came. That's who he is. And there's nothing a person trapped in spiritual darkness needs more than the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the light that shows them the way out. He's the light that draws them in. And he's the light that shines every time the gospel is preached. And every time the gospel is preached the light of jesus shines and the light of jesus christ does one of two things It draws men to him that they might be saved Or it repels them and they run to find a dark place to hide Because of the new testament says men love their sin and they hate desperately being exposed Jesus is a light He's the light Well, he's something else. He's also the savior of the world In verses 47 through 49, we see this. If anyone hears my words and he does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's interesting, right? The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. Well, we know this because Jesus said it a few times he didn't come the first time to judge the world, right? Because if he came the first time to judge the world, the world would be already judged, right? We wouldn't be here today doing what we're doing. He didn't come the first time to judge the world. That's great, isn't it? Because if you've been tracking on this through what John has been describing for us, the experience of Jesus in his earthly ministry, you see how many people rejected him, how many people outright hated him, how many people wanted him dead and wanted him killed. And you know, Jesus is saying to those very people, listen, you've rejected me, you hate me, you're trying to trap me, you ultimately want to kill me, but you need to understand, I haven't come right now to judge you. I haven't come to judge you. I haven't come to bring God's wrath upon you. I've come to open a way of salvation for you. I've come to save you. I didn't come to bring judgment this time. There will be a time for that, but right now it's a time for grace, isn't it? There's a day coming when judgment will be his purpose. The Bible makes that abundantly clear, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. Uh, Jesus speaking said when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him He'll sit on his glorious throne and before him All the people of the nations will be gathered and he will separate Them from one another as a shepherd separates the what Sheep and the goats And if you know the rest of that passage, it lays out for us that he judges He judges and one group is sent to eternal life and the other is sent to eternal hell Oh, there's a day coming for judgment There's a day coming when Christ will return and when he does the day and the opportunity for grace the opportunity to be saved will be over He will sit on his throne and he will rule and he will judge every human being who has ever walked this planet And everyone will stand before him and be accountable for their lives be accountable for their words be accountable for what they believed They'll give an account for their lives and those who heard his word and believed it and obeyed it And embraced him as lord and savior will be judged to eternal life And those who rejected it will be sentenced to eternal death Second corinthians chapter 5 paul writes for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ, right? Who's going to appear there? We must all do it So that each one may receive what is due For what he has done in the body good or evil The writer of Hebrews says it's appointed for a man once to die and then judgment. If there's any message that our culture hates in Christianity, it's that message, right? That there's a judgment coming. People desperately do not want to be accountable for their actions People desperately want to believe that there is no God That there's only nature Because if we can really believe that there's only nature And there is no God Then we don't have anyone to whom we have to ultimately be accountable They want to live however they want to live with no restraints They want to believe whatever they want to believe Or believe nothing at all They don't want to believe in a final judgment And a final accountability Right? Because to believe in that is to ask the question and answer the question How am I going to fare when that day comes around? And on what basis will I be judged? But now is not the time for that, is it? That's in the future Jesus said, and it's still true in our day He hasn't come for that There's an opportunity for grace that's open And what's going on right now is that God is being patient And Peter writes it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises Some count slowness Slowness But is what he's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance He's responding to those who say hey, you know You're telling me that god's that jesus is coming back, but man It's been a long time and he has not showed up yet. I don't think he's coming back Peter's response and there are people who still hold that view, right? Peter's response is yeah, you don't know what you're saying You're right. He hasn't come back yet, but but don't think for a minute that doesn't that that means he's not coming You know what that really means for you is that God's being patient for you. He's being patient toward you. He has not yet unleashed the flood of his wrath on the sin that you've committed in your life. And at any moment, any second he could do so and you would be consumed. But right now he's being patient. Right now he's giving you an opportunity. Right now he's saying to you, come to me, come to me, repent of your sin, trust in me and I'll forgive you and I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll endure the wrath for your sin on the cross on your behalf so that you won't have to. It's a season of patience. And listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've been putting off that choice, you've been putting off that decision, you need to understand that God is being very, very patient with you, and His patience could end at any time. He's sending the gospel out, and He's calling people just like you to Himself. He hasn't come to judge you yet. He's come to save. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came as a Savior, didn't He? This great time of the year, as we think about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, it is the picture of what Christ came to do. He came to save. He came to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father He came to call men to repentance and faith in Him And He came to be rejected and to be accused and to be arrested And to be crucified and to be abused and to be killed and to be buried And He came to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins He came to be buried in a tomb and to be raised again He came to be raised to new life To defeat hell and to defeat death and defeat the grave He came to call men to repentance and believe on him and to be saved That's he came to save that's what he came to do he's a savior for the world for any in the world who believe on him he says something interesting here he says I didn't come to judge but I came to save but listen to what he says the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge I didn't come to judge you but if you reject me you already have a judge did you notice who the judge is My words, my words are your judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now that's interesting, isn't it? I didn't come here to judge you, but the things that I'm saying to you right now, these very words that I'm speaking to you on the last day, they will stand up and be a judge against you. If you choose to reject this message, it will come back to haunt you. That's what Jesus is saying if you choose to reject this gospel, if you choose to reject the patience of God, if you choose to reject the offer of eternal life that I hold out to you, you can do that. And right this moment you won't face judgment, but on the last day the words that I'm speaking to you right now will come right back to haunt you. And they will stand against you as your judge. When you stand before the final judgment, exhibit one before that courtroom. Will be the words that I'm speaking the gospel The gospel will condemn you You will be without excuse You won't be able to stand on that day before the judgment and claim ignorance You won't be able to stand before that court and say well, I didn't know nobody told me Because the words that I'm speaking right now will echo through your mind and you'll know you'll know These words stand as a testimony that you didn't know, that you were told, and you did have opportunity, and the judgment is already cast because the words I'm speaking to you right now, my words will condemn you. It's amazing. The very same words that offer the hope of eternal life and hold that out to everyone who believes will rise up and judge those who reject The very offer of salvation that pronounces judgment on those who do not receive it. It's amazing. Can you imagine on the day of judgment what a horrible day that'll be? To stand accountable before Almighty God for your sin? To hear echoing in your mind every gospel presentation that you've ever heard standing up as a witness against you? Each and every one a witness leaving you completely at that moment without excuse and without a defense. I love how J.C. Ryle describes this. Listen, he says this, The words of those who speak for God are not thrown away because they seem not believed at the time. Did you get that? Let me read it again the words of those who speak for God are not thrown away because they seem not believed at the time Christ's words though despised and rejected by the Jews did not fall to the ground Those whom they did not save They will condemn There will be a resurrection of all faithful sermons at the last day. I'm glad to hear that (laughs) Great is the responsibility of preachers Their words are always doing good or adding to the condemnation of the lost. They are a savor of life to some and of death to others. Great is the responsibility of the hearers. They may ridicule and despise sermons, but they will find to their cost at last that they must give an account for all that they hear. The very sermons they now despise may be witnesses against them to their eternal ruin. That's good news for you if you're a faithful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ and people don't listen to you and they reject the message. It's not because you've been a failure and it's not because the message has died. It comes back around later if it's not believed. But it also stands here for us as a challenge to those of us who hear the gospel because when we hear it, we're now accountable for it. We're accountable for how we respond to it. And that's a challenge to people like you, most of you, those of you who are church people, you know what I mean? People who do this kind of thing on Sunday, who aren't golfing or fishing or whatever else people do on Sunday, who go to a church and listen to sermons and listen to the Word of God. It's not that you do this for fun. It's not just like a, like a, like a, um, a pastime that we do on Sundays where we come and listen and consider, oh, maybe I'll believe that, maybe I won't. When you come and once you hear, you're now accountable for what you do with it. You're accountable for how you respond to it. And the words that you hear, if you don't respond in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back around and stand at a witness against you later on to your own ruin. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never seen, you've never seen this light in your darkness. You've never seen the, this image bearer of the Father who makes Him known to you. You never received this Savior who came to save the world. Listen. You need to receive Him this morning. Because if you choose not to, the very words that you've heard in this place will come back around to haunt you one day. And they will stand as a witness against you. And you will have no defense. The gospel of Jesus Christ has gone. Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Will you submit to it and obey it? Don't reject His word today. I plead with you. Lord Jesus, we, we stand in awe of who you are. We are, so, we are so grateful for your life, your ministry as you walked upon the earth. We're so grateful that you came for a multitude of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that you died on the cross for our sin, that we might have eternal life, that you died as an atoning sacrifice for us. But we're grateful that you've come so that we could understand our Father. We're grateful that you've come so that you could show us what God is like. So that you could tell us who He is and what He's like and show us what He expects. So that we don't just have to imagine what it means to read in the Old Testament that God is love, but we could see it displayed in you. So that we don't just have to imagine what it means when the Bible tells us that God is just, but we could see it in your actions. We thank you that you came to put the Father on display so that we might see Him more clearly, be drawn to Him and love Him more dearly. We thank you that you shine a light into our darkness. For those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, we are eternally grateful that at some point in our lives, You came into our darkened spiritual state, into our darkness of moral sin, into our spiritual darkness, into our emotional darkness and discouragement. And in the midst of all of that, You shined as a light. You let us out. And You showed us that there's hope well beyond this life. If we just believe in You and trust ourselves to You. That we'd find a reason for living rather than dying. That we'd find a purpose for our lives. That we would find a purpose that extends well beyond our days that are here. Into eternity. I thank you that you came to save us. You came to live a perfect life and to die in our place. We celebrate that this morning. And we're drawn to love you even deeper for what you've done to us, Lord Jesus, and done for us. Lord, we pray for that one who's here today who hasn't received you. That they would hear that gospel this morning. That those words would be a magnet that draws them, draws them to you. That they would run to you this morning in repentance and faith. And believe in you. Trust in you. Only you can make that happen by your spirit. And we pray for it this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. 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 Amen.